Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England. Episode 65, Why Was Henry III So Unpopular? Last week, Henry and de Montfort were starting their troublesome relationship and Henry's last attempt to regain the lands of his fathers had ended in pain, defeat and despair. Well, possibly something of an overstatement, but you know what I mean. This week, I think we should look at why Henry's reign ends up in a rather remarkable revolution. And revolution is the right word, rather than rebellion. But before we set off on that particular route, I thought it was time for a bit of a diversion into the world of religion. Because the early 13th century saw the emergence of two new religious movements. Let's start then with Giovanni di Bernardoni. That's my Italian accent. Born at Assisi in 1181 or two to a rich cloth merchant. Now, I'm not a great fan of religious figures by and large, though there are some exceptions, and Giovanni is one of them. And I'd guess I'm not alone. In his salad days, green in judgment, cold in blood, he was nicknamed Francesco because of his passion for French songs and romances. He wore the most stylish clothing. He was the leader of the pack of the gilded youth. But at the age of 25, things began to change for the lad. He began to feel disillusioned at the life of a cloth merchant, which presumably drove his poor father Pietro up the wall. He began to nurse lepers and dated his own conversion from the time he felt compelled to kiss a leper. Soon afterwards, he heard the figure of Christ in a church telling him to go and repair my church, which you see is in ruins. Possibly not the sharpest knife in the drawer, Giovanni took this literally and started to repair the local church, though with hindsight it could have been a more wide-ranging mandate to put the whole church in order, but never mind. 
In his efforts to repair the church, he decided to sell his father's cloth. His dad, Pietro, went wild, and I have to say, my antipathies are almost entirely with Pietro. After all, it wasn't the little tick's cloth to sell in the first place, though I don't think I'd have taken it quite as far as Pietro did, which was to prosecute Giovanni and the bishop's court. This is not in the Good Parenting Manual, and led to the inevitable rejection by Giovanni of his father and everything he stood for. And off he went to live the life of a beggar. The next big event was a priest repeating Christ's command to Go and preach. Provide no money for your purse nor pack for your journey, neither two coats nor shoes nor yet a staff. Now Giovanni knew what his vocation was. He gathered a few companions and together they refused even the common ownership of property, distributing their possessions among the poor as they set out on their missionary journeys. In 1210, St Francis, as Giovanni would later be known, gained the Pope's approval for his preaching. And the rule that his new order, the Friars Minor, was based on was simple. It was to follow the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ and to follow in his footsteps. The numbers of lesser friars grew apace, and in this period you get the stories of St Francis' lover for nature, preaching to the birds, subduing ravening wolves, that sort of thing. In 1219, St Francis went to the Holy Land and fearlessly preached to the Sultan. The long and short was that by the time St Francis died in 1224, at the tender age of 42, a new religious organisation had entered the medieval world, the Franciscan Friars. The first group arrived in England in 1224 and were promptly arrested as vagabonds. But they recovered and very soon had centres at Oxford and London. The Franciscans turned the religious model upside down. Instead of withdrawing from the world, they set themselves up in the centres of population. They sought out the poor. Instead of vast estates, they remained devoted to poverty and were great preachers, and consequently their popular impact was enormous. And they had a broader view of how they could improve people's lives, not just through God, but also by practical action. Good examples of this were that they built an aqueduct in London in 1255 and also in Oxford and Southampton. Just a bit earlier, another order of friars had arrived in England as well, the Dominicans. Their founder, St Dominic, had been born in Castile in 1170. You get the same kind of legends gather around him, like St Francis, tales from giving his books and clothes away to help the poor, that sort of thing. But in point of fact, he had a rather more conventional background, being a churchman pretty much all the way through. In 1209, he preached in the lands of the Cathars in the south of France, hoping to win the argument by being even simpler than the Cathar perfects. By 1217, he'd founded his order of friar preachers. There were therefore distinct similarities between the two orders. But there were also differences between the Grey Friars, i.e. the Franciscans, and the Black Friars, i.e. the Dominicans. In his dealing with the Cathars, St Dominic had shown himself to be an unrelenting and intellectual fighter against heresy, and both of these things became reflected in the order. In particular, in parts of Europe, the Dominicans became known as the Dominicanis, or watchdogs of God. It was the Dominicans who were at the heart of the infamous Inquisition. At the height of the Inquisition, Dominican friars rigorously interrogated anyone suspected of the slightest connection with heretics, forcing children to testify against parents and wives against husbands. Unrepentant heretics were burnt at the stake without the mercy of strangling beforehand. But this is basically a continental story, and one focused on Spain, Portugal 
and the south of France before Catharism was rubbed out. In England, the Black Friars excelled as preachers, just like the Franciscans. But they also became diplomats and chaplains to the great, often to be found lending their intellects to the leaders of Europe, including every English king, for example, from Henry III to Richard II. There were other mendicant orders also that emerged in the 13th century, particularly the Carmelites or White Friars and the Austin Friars. And it wasn't long before they all began to have some of the same problems about how you build an order without property. So Matthew Paris complained that their buildings rivalled palaces in height. But there's equally no doubt that together the mendicants had a big impact on spiritual life in England and their preachings were a regular feature of town life, drawing massive crowds. Their popularity is shown by the frequency with which they're referred to in wills. So, for example, of 119 wills in Carlisle from the period, over half include bequests to friars of one kind or another. Now, while we're on matters religious, it would be good also to mention one of the leading figures of the age, the English bishop Robert Gross Test. It's worth mentioning him for a few reasons. Firstly, because of his fame throughout the Christian world. This was partly due to his practical activity in the reform of the church. Much of this focused on the issues we've talked about many times before, but his particular bent was the focus on active and structured pastoral care, with a passion for stomping round his diocese righting wrongs. By the time of his death, most dioceses had a pretty clear programme of how to deal with the endemic abuses within the church, the conduct of the clergy, holding only one post, clerical marriage and all that sort of thing. He was more famous than that, though. He was also famous for being a scientist and mathematician whose writing on optics was still being used centuries later. The second reason to mention him was for his background. He was one of the very few examples of a man who rose from a very lowly background in Suffolk to become a leading national figure. I mean, really, imagine it. A man from Suffolk. The main reason to mention him, though, was for his political influence. He was no lover of the papacy, particularly the papal curia and their power over the English church. He wasn't afraid of handing his views out to people at all levels. He famously gave the Pope a thoroughly good talking to when he tried to dump an Italian church official on him. And particularly significantly for our story, he had strong views on the powers of church and state. Part of this was unsurprising, i.e. the church rocked, the king was to be treated with great caution, but... He was very influential in his views on royal rule and the dangers of tyranny. All of this became particularly relevant because of his very close relationship with Simon de Montfort. He was a constant correspondent and basically approved very much of him and supported him, though he wasn't averse to telling him off when he thought he'd taken a wrong step. But one of the features of de Montfort would be his almost religious devotion to the cause of revolt after 1258, and it's clear that Gross Test's views deeply influenced him. All of this is very worthy, clearly, so let's hear it for Robert Gross Test, famous Englishman and man of Suffolk. I do need also, though, to mention the story of his test for nuns' chastity, which involved the feeling of the nun's breast, which raises a lovely image of his pastoral visits to his nunneries. Clearly, of course, even the cleverest people have the odd eccentricity as well. OK, so let's get back to the main story and the government of Henry III. At the heart of Henry's reign is something of a paradox, it seems to me. He was clearly affected by the turmoil of 1215 and 1217, and he never felt secure, and therefore he tried to create peace at home and in his court. And yet, despite this, his reign contained a revolution of exceptional force and radicalism. For something like 40 years, there was pretty continuous peace, certainly within England itself. 
The financial oppression of the level of John was a thing of the past, as Magna Carta did now sit at the centre of government. Henry himself seems to be a rather likeable, affable man, and yet his government becomes deeply unpopular, all a bit confusing. Henry himself, poor lad, comes across as being a bit confused by the whole thing. In the midst of the political crisis in 1261, he's reported to have said, For 45 years in which we have held the government of our kingdom, with our utmost desire and all our strength, we have not ceased to study and labour for the peace and tranquillity of one and all. And then again, Since the time of our youth, when God placed us to rule over the kingdom of England, we have always had it at heart to do with all our might those things we knew to be conducive to the peace and tranquillity of our subjects. You can't help feeling that rebellion against Henry was a bit like beating a puppy. Henry, the poor old puppy, really didn't understand why the pool of Whittle was a problem and leapt about trying to make everything better. So the question is, how on earth did Henry end up where he did? One of the problems was the appearance of a deep division between the native aristocracy and foreigners. We heard last week about the arrival of the Savoyard, the Queen's family, in the 1240s. Although there had been a lot of them, their conduct meant the King pretty much got away with it, and they seemed to assimilate into English society fine. But the next group lit a fire under the body politic. These were the people from Poitou, i.e. the Poitevin, and in particular a group of the Poitevin, the King's half-brothers, the Lusignans i.e. his mother Isabella's children from her second marriage to Hugh de Lusignan. In 1247, Henry invited over his four half-brothers, William de Valence, Ima, Geoffrey and Guy de Lusignan, and their sister Alice. A flood of patronage promptly came their way. William de Valence scored an absolute blinder when he was given Joan in marriage, Joan being one of the Pembroke heiresses. Ima became the Bishop of Winchester, Geoffrey and Guy were given pensions, Alice was married off to one of the richest heirs in the country, John of Warren. And this was just the start. Between 1247 and 1258, 24 wardships were granted to the Poitevin, as opposed to just seven to barons outside the Poitevian circle. Henry seized on the Poitevin because he saw the opportunity to build a close relationship that would protect the northern borders of Gascony, and also give him the support of a group of lords that were family. But let's be quite clear, he had no wish or coherent strategy to exclude English barons from power. In the 1250s, for example, Richard de Clare, the Earl of Gloucester, became a leading councillor, as did Hugh Bigard, and the Earls of Norfolk and Hereford also. And above all, Henry relied on his brother Richard, Earl of Cornwall. He tried to create a harmonious court that brought all of these groups together, but unfortunately he just lacked the skill to do it. One of the problems was the amount of patronage at his command by now was very much reduced. So much so that during Henry's reign it became the practice for the king not to be allowed to permanently alienate any of the king's domain land, and that's a really important change. So the granting away to a bunch of garlic-eating foreigners of prime opportunities made the English barons slobber with fury. On top of this, Henry handled it just really badly. So he'd form orderly queues and then suddenly decide to give out a bit of favour based on his favourite of the moment. It was all just too random. Meanwhile, the role of sport as a great promoter of international division and rivalry proved to be as powerful as in modern times. The medieval idiom for sport was, of course, the tournament. 
And in the 13th century, this still had much more in common with a legalised brawl than the highly ritualised event it was to become in the 14th. In 1247, Henry, who had little sympathy with the violent, impious pastime as he saw it, had enough sense, simplex or not, to ban a tournament between the followers of Gilbert de Clare and Guy de Lusignan. But in 1249, many English knights were defeated by the Lusignan, with the English then getting their own back at the return match in 1251. These were pretty violent, inflammable affairs. A further problem was that the factionalism at court wasn't just English versus foreigner, it was also Poitevin versus Savoyard. In 1252, for example, there was a dispute between Peter of Savoy and Ima of Lusignan that required royal intervention to resolve. The rivalry was then made much more intense by competition for control of the heir to the throne, i.e. Edward. For much of the reign it was simple enough. The Queen and her relations the Savoyard controlled the prince's education and upbringing, and that was the way it was. But as he grew into a young man, Edward fell under the influence of the Lusignan, and since the prince would become, as king, the source of all power and patronage, this gave the Savoyard from the Queen down understandably itchy palms. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So far, a lot of the English hostility looks like a pretty simple case of medieval racism. They come over here, take our jobs, steal our women, that sort of thing. But it's more complicated than that. Many and indeed most of the Lusignan followers in England were in fact English themselves. But unlike the Savoyard, the Lusignan didn't behave themselves. They caused widespread resentment, not just because of the patronage they received, although that was bad enough, but also how they used that patronage. Their officials were high-handed and oppressive, and Henry was way too indulgent towards them when they were. A particularly good example comes from the sheriffs, as the chief agents of royal power. So, Robert de Tohal, the sheriff of Bedfordshire and Buckinghamshire, noted in his report that he didn't dare raise the required revenue from nine vills, in his words, because of the power of William de Valence. Guy de Lusignan told the servant of the sheriff of Huntingdonshire that, quote, he would do no more for the sheriff than the sheriff's daughter. Unfortunately, the king weakly acquiesced and even supported this. And the Safayar weren't exempt as well. So, for example, Peter of Savoy excluded the sheriff from his lands of Richmondshire. And Henry III responded by giving him a charter confirming his right to do so. Tough stuff. William de Valence then did the same in Gloucester and Hampshire. So, we have factionalism at court. We have a powder keg of resentment between powerful English barons and foreign interlopers with a king too weak to keep it all under control which could give an excuse for a good old interbaronial spat, but not for a revolution of the size that we get in the 1260s. Henry's government was even more widely unpopular than that, right the way down to the local gentry and peasantry. So what was going on there? So, you know the way that the English barons thought the foreigners were an evil, rapacious blot on the body politic and social? Well, there's just a touch of hypocrisy going on here, because the evidence is that the English barons were every bit as bad. 
So, our Robert de Tohal made exactly the same note as we've just mentioned when he reported that there were 12 bills where he didn't dare raise £12, 16 shillings and 4 denarii because of the power of the Earl of Gloucester. Which is, of course, our English as buttered scones declare family. One of the things that happens in Henry's reign is that the office of sheriff becomes divorced from the control of the major magnates. Sheriffs are now drawn from the gentry. Now, this is a potentially very good thing, capital G, capital T, making them effectively royal officials controllable by the crown, just in the way that we've been talking about since the time of Billy the Conk. The danger was that in the hands of a feeble monarch, though, the magnates would simply ignore them and do their own sweet thing. And in Henry's reign, that's exactly what happens. The people at the end of this who suffer are the local gentry and peasantry, with a rising tide of complaints against the magnates, bailiffs and officials as they made the most of their power. For example, they now forced their men to attend the baronial courts, where previously they'd not had to, so that the magnates could now make a bit of money out of justice. To make it even worse, in the face of increasing impression, there was no comeback. William de Bussy, one of Lusignan's estate stewards, taunted a Lincolnshire knight, saying, If I do wrong, who is there to do you right? The point being that Henry would actively intervene to subvert the course of royal justice in the favour of his magnate pals. Let's have a couple of examples. In 1255, Henry ordered that no writs were to be issued that went against the interests of his great English earls of Gloucester and Cornwall. In 1255 again, a case came before the Somerset judge Bracton, a case of novel decision, i.e. a land dispute. The well-connected baron, William de Montacute, managed to get a writ that ordered Bracton to refer the case Corum Regi, i.e. to the king's bench. Bracton himself was clearly pretty grumpy about this, noting in his report there was no proper cause for this to happen, that the case was totally straightforward. The plaintiff, Andrew Wake, a pretty well-connected man himself, since he later became a sheriff, tried again later to get another writ, and being actually fined ten marks for his temerity. The size basically never happened, and Wake never got his case heard. Again, the point of this is that Henry effectively buried the case to help his mate Montacute. Put all of this together, and what you have is an increasingly politicised nation of knights and small landholders who are suffering oppression from their lords and magnates and find that the crown is letting it all happen, and even colluding with the magnates to help it happen. In the words of a chronicler, the situation was one of common justice being trampled underfoot, the stronger denied it to the weaker without reason, and, making no distinction of tenure, any man who was stronger than his neighbour distrained him at will, and did as he saw fit, whether good or evil. Meanwhile, all these problems meant that royal power was of course being usurped by the magnates. Sheriffs and royal justices were unable to distrain or control the magnates. Henry himself was pretty two-brained about this. So, on the one hand, faced by the relevant magnate in his court, he would weakly, and I bet even enthusiastically, help the bloke with his suppression issues. Suppress away. In the privacy of his own bedchamber, he'd then worry about what was happening and think he ought to do something about it. So, for example, in 1244 and 1250, he made speeches to the sheriffs about protecting royal rights. In 1255, he set up a general review of royal rights. This achieved absolutely zip, since Henry was clearly incapable of pushing anything through, but simply served to make the magnates nervous that actually maybe this time he would do something with the information. Just to finish this picture, there was one further consequence. 
the king was ever short of money. One of his routes to getting more of it was to demand more of the sheriff's farms in the form of increments. So, to explain, let's say that you're the sheriff of anywhere, Shire. It's expected that you will be able to return 100 quid a year to the exchequer from royal taxes and dues on your patch. And if there's more that you can get, then that's your profit margin. Now the king is asking for increments on that. So this year, you need to get 110 quid, for example. Together with the fact that you're finding it impossible to get anything out of the magnate's lands, this is a double whammy for the common man, since the sheriffs now had to screw down even harder. Meanwhile, the king's needs for money meant that the royal heirs and the forest heirs, i.e. the circuits of justices, were up to the same thing, just trying to raise more money. Not a pretty picture. But, I know what you're thinking. Hey, you're thinking, OK, so I get the point that royal revenues are much lower than before. But if the king is also pally-pally with the magnates, why doesn't he just get them to agree to a tax? Everything will be hunky-dory and generally tickety-boo. In fact, despite his best efforts, Henry wasn't at ease with his magnum concilium, who refused his requests for taxation time after time. Part of this was the factionalism at court, part of it the fury over the foreigners at court, part of it was the ineptitude of Henry's foreign policy, which we'll come to some future time, and lack of confidence that he had the basic competence to do anything sensible with the money if he got it. He also began to lose the support of the church in the ecclesiastical magnates, also partly driven by his need for money. Like many kings before him, think back to William Rufus for example, he was accused of keeping vacancies open so that he could gather and exploit the revenue in the interim. Plus, he refused to allow the church to gather fines they'd traditionally thought of as theirs and got the royal officials to bring it into the exchequer instead. This meant that Henry was left without a traditional source of royal support within his great council. All of this led to the development of that grand old institution, the Parliament. And one of the reasons why Henry's reign should be better remembered, because through this reign the magnates and barons began to understand and use the power that they had through the control of taxation to expand and extend their remit and power. The first official use of the word Parliament comes in November 1236, when Henry referred a law case to the Parliament that was to meet in January 1237. This ensuing Parliament was no embryonic House of Commons, and after all, the word Parliament derives from the Latin parliamentum, and simply means a discussion. It was basically a new word for the Witten, or Magna Concilium, that is first referred to by Bede in the court of King Edwin of Northumbria, if you remember those happy days. At its heart, this council and parliament is basically the highest law court in the land, and also a gathering where the king can take advice. It's difficult to be precise about the composition of the council, but in 1225, for example, we know that there were 12 bishops, 20 abbots, the justicia, 9 earls and 23 barons, so a total of 65, pretty evenly split between secular and ecclesiastical lords. These tenants-in-chief had given common consent to taxation on behalf of the free men of the realm. And increasingly, this level of consent came to be recognised as being insufficient. We can map this feeling growing. So in 1226, four knights were asked to come to Lincoln to report on the implementation of Magna Carta in their shire, a broader involvement. A well-known principle of Roman law was the tag, what touches all shall be approved by all. 
and this principle was enshrined in canon law. So, for example, bishops in 1226 and 1240, resisting taxation from Pope and King, made it clear that they couldn't speak for the lower clergy. But the big change came in 1254. In 1254, the county courts were ordered to elect two knights to come and grant taxation on behalf of everyone in the country. These men were to show that they were prepared to mix it with the king and weren't to be taken granted. And indeed, in 1254, when this first happened, the relevant taxation was not granted to the king. The unpopularity of Henry's government and his need for money meant that his meetings with his parliament didn't go well and were often very acrimonious. Between 1237 and 1257, none of them yielded to the king's demand for taxation. This was usually because they attached conditions that the king found unacceptable. And these conditions were a result of the political nation beginning to realise that although Magna Carta had clearly made a big difference, it still had a number of significant deficiencies. It said absolutely nothing about the magnates and the conduct of their officials. It said nothing about control of central government. The king remained free to choose his ministers, bestow patronage, determine policy, absolutely as he liked. And all of this came to a head at the Parliament of 1244, where once again Henry made a demand for a grant of taxation. What followed might be described as a full and frank exchange of views, the sort of thing that parents tell their children is simply a discussion, i.e. a blazing row. The king tried to divide the parliament to no avail and they produced what became called the paper constitution, so called because it only ever existed on paper and never actually got implemented. The constitution wanted to restore the great offices of state that Henry had done away with, such as the justicia. They were then to elect four of the king's inner council and these four were in effect control central government, hearing complaints, managing the king's treasure, choosing justices and officials of the exchequer. Really... This was revolutionary. The king was livid. Why on earth, he said, should he not have the right to select his own councillors as the magnates did themselves? But there was a widespread view that if the king was a dud, it was the duty of the baronage to represent the community of the realm and bridle him, just as they'd done over Peter de Roche in 1234. On this occasion, in 1244, Henry withdrew his request for taxation and so the matter lapsed and he managed to avoid the issue. But the claims were revived every time he asked for taxation and eventually this is what would be implemented in 1258. Henry managed to survive for a long time without extra taxation by exploiting the royal domain, by increasing the farms from the sheriffs, by demanding more and more from the Jews and by getting as much as possible from royal justice and the forest heirs. And actually this is something of an achievement and between 1249 and 1253, he even manages to amass a treasure of about 30,000 marks. It shows that Henry isn't a complete loser. He manages to control his expenditure and shows the financial nous to build this central pot. The problem is that really the amount of money is pretty feeble. Compare 30,000 marks, for example, with the tax of one-fifth of all movables in 1225, which raised 60,000 marks in one hit. In addition, the treasure was raised through the sale of privileges which were a one-off. So, once he blew his treasure, which was exactly what was to happen, he couldn't raise the money again. As a small digression, Henry's treasure led to a curiosity I should mention, which was the issue of a gold coinage. Henry had done everything he could do to force people to pay for these privileges and fines in gold rather than silver. The big reason for this was that he wanted to go on crusade. 
and the tradition was that gold was used for coinage in the east as opposed to the silver mainly used in the west. And so he managed to amass his 30,000 marks in gold in the form of gold strips. And then in 1257 he melted all this gold down and issued a gold coin which was twice as heavy as a silver penny and worth 20 silver pennies each, so a ratio of 10 to 1 of gold to silver. He had a few reasons for this. It helped him to convert his gold strips into coin, which would be easier to use. He hoped that people would use gold leaf to buy coins, and he'd be able to make a profit. And he felt it helped him build his prestige and develop the aura of kingship around him. Unfortunately, it turned out to be an expensive failure. So much gold hitting the market brought the value of gold down, and for most people anyway, each coin was way too expensive to be of any interest. Still, it's a curiosity. By the way of comparison, by way of comparison, incidentally, the first French gold coinage was issued nine years later in 1266 by Louis IX. There was one more big hairy nail to go in his coffin. Actually, nails aren't generally hairy, but one big nail. And this was Henry's general incompetence in the area of foreign policy. However, I think that can wait for next time, as we come to the political crisis of 1258 and 1264. So for the moment, thank you all again very much for listening and for all your comments, emails, iTunes ratings and all that sort of thing. I was very excited, by the way, to get over the 100 ratings mark in UK iTunes and over 125 in the US store. Thanks again, everyone. Good luck and have a great week. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 